such a big collection that um, I'm still working on their back catalog. And I started listening to their Generosity series, and I thought that would be a great lesson. Um, I'm going to use their main scripture, but I'm going to go in a completely different direction, so uh, don't blame them if you don't like my, my lesson. Um, I need help being generous. Uh, my wife's a giving soul, but I'm not. Uh, I'm deficient in that area. So when we recognize that, my wife and I, when we recognize something needs to be, uh, there's some, a need that needs to be um, given to, we kind of try to come to a consensus. And um, realizing that I'm in that uh, generous, deficient area, I've started giving a range of values. I'm, I'm giving a confession here, Linda. So... <laughs> Um, so the lower number is my comfortable number. Okay, just give, you know, it, it's what I need jerk give if, if I was just by myself and not trying to be more generous. And then I give a higher number that pushes the boundaries a little bit, makes me uncomfortable, and uh, I'm hoping that by doing this, I'm going to be like an athlete who runs a couple extra laps. He's going to get stronger, and um, I, my... Um, generosity will be become better. Um, I don't know if this is working yet. It's, it's still too early in the game to figure out that out. But hopefully this lesson will help me and help you if any of you are as generosity uh, challenged as I am. Okay. So one of the problems we have with generosity is that the first lie ever made uh, was one that lied about God's generosity. Our human natures have no problem believing this lie. Let's look at this. It's in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, the Lord, well, we need a little background first. The Lord planted an orchard in the east, in Eden, and then he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow from the soil, every tree that was pleasing to look at and good for, the food, good for food. Now the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were in the middle of the orchard. So God and later Eve were given an orchard of abundance with trees both beautiful and fruit producing. And then God gave command. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the orchard in Eden to care for it and maintain it. Then the Lord commanded the man, you may freely eat from the fruit of every tree of the orchard, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. So the first command they were given was they're freely to eat of any tree but that one. And here comes the serpent's lie. He wanted to create the division between God and humanity. So, now the serpent was shrewder than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, is it true that God said, you must not eat of any tree of the orchard, from fruit of any tree of the orchard? Now this is the first lie, and it's the lie about God's generosity. And our ancestors fell for it, and we are still falling for it today. So, we need to recognize God's gifts. How do we do that? Well, I got an example here from my childhood and growing up. So there's a verse in the um, Sermon on the Mount, or a phrase of a verse, 
is he, which is God, sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. But what does that mean? Growing up, I heard that that meant that terrible things happen to everyone. Has anyone ever heard that? Okay, good. I'm glad that I wasn't just confused. Um, and I, growing up, I heard it many times. In fact, I think there was one sermon after I had realized it was wrong where the, the, uh, the preacher kept repeating the phrase, and it was just like nails on a chalkboard. I was like, please stop. Um, but what does it mean? If God is love, what is he doing sending misfortune to everyone? Well, let's look at some other verses about rain. First, in Ezekiel, I will turn them and the regions around them, around my hill, into a blessing. I will make showers come down in their season. They will be showers that bring blessing. So this is part of a messianic prophecy, and the showers are obviously a blessing. So that's not helping um, the argument. And then when Paul preaches on rain... He's trying to get the people of Lystra to stop worshiping him as a god because he had just healed a lame man. And he says, men, why are you doing these things? We too are men with human natures just like you. We are, produce, we are proclaiming the good news to you so that you should turn from your worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to go their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness, by doing good, by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying you with food and your hearts with joy. So here, rain is a sign of God's generous goodness. And it's for those people that might not know about him otherwise. So, we have rain being a blessing and a sign of goodness. So let's go now look at the context of that phrase, he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, it's, like I said, it's part of um, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, and it's in Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be like your Father in heaven, since he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same, don't they? And if we only greet our brothers, what more do you, what more do, you do? Even the Gentiles do the same, don't they? So then, be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. So in English Bibles that contain extra sectional headings, this is usually called love your enemies, or something similar to that. So Jesus is teaching that our Heavenly Father loves everyone so much, the good, the bad, the righteous, the evil, that he is sending sun and rain to produce crops because of his perfect love. For the rain to be a misfortune is weakening Jesus' argument here when he's teaching on God's perfect love. Rain is an inconvenience for our modern post-agricultural society, but in the first century, most people were farmers, and they needed that rain and that sun to produce crops. And so we're t when that preacher was taking that verse out of context, he was using the 20th, 20th century, it was a while ago, 20 <laughs> not 21st, 20th century, sensibilities, but misinterpreting a first century teaching. Um, <clears throat> like I said, this is 
nails on the chalkboard. It's a pet peeve of mine. Fortunately, I can say that I haven't heard it here. So, good job, Pastor. <laughs> um, God has given us so much that sometimes we don't even recognize it. And we need to do that. If you do need a verse about bad things happening to good people, look in Ecclesiastes. And the example I got is Ecclesiastes 9.11. Again, I observe this on the earth. The race is not always won by the swiftest. The battle is not always won by the strongest. Prosperity does not always belong to those who are the wisest. Wealth does not belong to those who are the most discerning. Nor does success always come to those with the most knowledge. For time and chance may overcome them all. Um, if you want that to be more universalized, the Revised English Bible says time and chance govern all. So it governs all of us. Part of our existence in this fallen world is that we don't understand um, everything that takes place. And we have this fog of understanding, which means we have to accept things will not go as planned. Because time and chance will overtake us at some point. Returning to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also taught about not worrying. Um, it's in Matthew 6, 25 through 34. I'm going to use Luke's account. I like Luke's uh, phrasing generally better. He's a historian, and I'm a history lover, so um, I generally like Luke's account when he has one better than the others. So, it's going to be a long reading here. Luke 12, 22 through 34. Then Jesus said to disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For there is more to life than food, and more to the body than clothing. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add an hour to his life? So if you cannot do such a very little thing as this, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the flowers grow. They do not work or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory was clothed like one of these. And if this is how God clothes the wild grass, which is here today and tomorrow is tossed into the fire to the heat the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you people of little faith? So do not be overly concerned about what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not worry about such things, for all the nations of the world pursue these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, pursue his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father is well pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide yourselves purses that do not wear out, a treasure in heaven that never decreases, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, that your heart will also be. So this is a beautiful image of God's generosity. God provides for the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. How much more will he provide for mankind that he created in his image? So let's go through and highlight some of these verses. Starting with um, verse 22. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Now again, taking this into the first century context of Galilee, they had a lot more to worry about than we did. They were subsistent farmers with a high Roman tax rate and no credit. They could be one bad crop away from having to sell their farm, or even worse, having to sell themselves as slaves. 
our middle class lifestyle with unemployment insurance, credit, um, bankruptcy laws and everything means that we have a safety net that they would, couldn't even imagine. So, for there's more to life than food and more to the body than clothing. I believe Jesus was here referring to Deuteronomy 8.3. Now, most of you don't know what that verse is, but you all know that Jesus quoted it earlier in that you, when he was told by the devil to be tempting, the devil tempted him to turn stone into bread when he was in the wilderness. That's the verse that he quoted. So he humbled you by making you hungry and feeding you with the unfamiliar manna. He did this to teach you that mankind cannot live by bread alone, but also by everything that comes from the mouth, the Lord's mouth. So here Jesus is not only referencing manna that was given by God to their ancestors in the wilderness, but also hinting that we should trust another gift from God, his scripture. Would everyone in Jesus' audience get the reference? Probably everyone in Jesus' audience would get the reference, but not necessarily all in Luke's audience, because those are two different things. Jesus was taking, talking to other Jews in Galilee, while Luke was writing to believers that were most likely from Gentile backgrounds. So most of Luke's audience wouldn't have gotten this, um, these references, but most of Jesus' audience would have, because Jewish schooling at that day was in the synagogues and would revolve around the Bible, that it would be the Old Testament, and its interpretation. And since day, people of that day didn't, couldn't be distracted by Stan Lee or Shakespeare, let alone Netflix or the Internet, they would know these things as well as we know statistics or the favorite line from our favorite movies. On to the ravens. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? So the previous section in Luke's um, gospel is about the foolish rich, young land, rich landowner that after having a bumper crop, plans to tear down his barns to build bigger ones. And then um, learns that he's going to die that night. And Jesus asks this crowd, who is going to get his crops? So I'm sure that most in Luke's audience would remember that and catch the connection, that time and chance govern us all so that we need to be rich toward God. But there are two Old Testament references that Jesus could be relating to. One's rather obscure. You guys probably don't remember it unless you read your Psalms regularly. And that is in Psalms 147. He covers the sky with clouds, provides the earth with rain, and causes grass to grow on the hillsides. He gives foods to the animals and to the young ravens when they chirp. Yes, I added verse 8 there so that you could see that rain was a blessing from God again. Um, so this is um, a rather obscure reference that I'm sure no one's quoting regularly. But the more knowledgeable in the audience may have known it. Again, they didn't have distractions that we do. But this next reference, I'm sure everyone in Jesus' audience got. And that is when Elijah was fed by the ravens. During Elijah's day, Israel was led by King Ahab and his um, foreign queen, Jezebel. And they were worshiping Baal because Jezebel was leading them into that. And Baal was the Canaanite god of rain and fertility. So when God wanted to show that he had power over Baal, what did he do? He stopped the rain. This is, you know, hey, this is uh, Baal's speciality. I'm going to show him that I got power over it. So he stopped the rain, and during the drought, 
In 1 Kings 17, we see, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As certainly as the Lord God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be no dew or rain in the years ahead until I give the command. The Lord's message came to him, Leave here and travel eastward. Hide out in the Kirith Valley near the Jordan. Drink from the stream. I have already told the ravens to bring you food there. So he carried out the Lord's message. He went and lived in the Kirith Valley near Jordan, and the ravens would bring him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he would drink from the stream. So the drought ends in this dramatic confrontation between Elijah and 400 um, priests of Baal at Mark Carmel. It's in 1 Kings 18. If you're not familiar with it, I recommend that you read it. Um, so Elijah is probably the greatest prophet of Israel beyond Moses, and before, since Moses. And this drought is the most famous event of his life. So all of Jesus' contemporaries would have recognized it. So Jesus is applying, not only does um, God, our Father, provide for the ravens, but he had the ravens provide for Elijah during the drought. So back to the sermon. And which of you can add an hour to his life? So if you cannot do so much of very little thing as this, why do you worry about the rest? Again, we don't know when we're going to die. Time and chance come upon us all. The next verse in Ecclesiastes that I was using earlier says, Surely no one knows his appointed time. Like fish that are caught in a deadly net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, just like them, all people are snared at an unfortunate time that falls upon them suddenly. So we can eat wealth, we can exercise, we can listen to our doctors, but at some point, time and chance is going to overtake us. So, consider how the flowers grow. They do not spin or work, work or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory was clothed like one of these. And if this is how God clothes the wild grass, which is here today and tomorrow is tossed into the fire to heat the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you people of little faith? This verse reminds me of my time in Montana when I was hiking, and I <clears throat> we crested this ridge, and there's this beautiful alpine lake. And that's where we set up our camp. And just beyond this alpine lake was this beautiful alpine meadow full of different wildflowers of different shapes and colors. And um, so I just remember that. It was one of the most beautiful things I had ever seen and a highlight of that trip. So the kingdom of Israel peaked in Solomon's day, and yet we're told that the wildflowers of the field were dressed more royally than, than Solomon. We can get a glimpse of Solomon's wealth when the queen of Sheba visits him. In 1 Kings 10, Solomon answered all of her questions. That's queen of Sheba. There was no question too complex for the king. When the queen of Sheba saw for herself, of Solomon's extensive wisdom, the palace he had built, the food in his banquet hall, his servants and attendants, their robes, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings, which he presented to the Lord's temple, she was amazed. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your wise sayings and insight was true. I did not believe these things until I came and saw them with my own eyes. Indeed, I did not even hear half the story. Your wisdom and wealth surpass what was reported to me. So the queen of Sheba was impressed by the robes of Solomon's servants. What was he wearing? 
And yet God gives wildflowers better raiment than Solomon's best. So, we should not be overly concerned about what you will eat and what you will drink. And do not worry about such things. For all the nations of the world pursue these things, and your Father knows that you need them. So, when Jesus introduced the Lord's Prayer, he said, When you pray, do not babble repeatedly like the Gentiles, but because they think that by their many words they will be heard. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask them. So we do not need to ask, and our, <clears throat> even before we ask, our Father knows what we need. So we have no reason to worry. Instead, he wants us to pursue his kingdom. Instead, pursue his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. In Matthew, he recounts Jesus saying in another um, teaching, And whoever has left his houses or his brother or sister, or father, or mother, or children, or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So if we pursue his kingdom, God will bless us, and give us eternal life, which is an amazing gift in itself. And then <clears throat> Luke continues, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father is well pleased to give you the kingdom. That's another gift we have. We can be a part of God's kingdom. Now that Jesus knows the audience, knows how much God the Father gives them, he wants them to start giving back. So he starts teaching, Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide yourselves purses that do not wear out, a treasure in heaven that never decreases, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. So, we're supposed to sell our possessions here, it says. Uh, another time Jesus told someone to sell their possessions was the rich young ruler. <clears throat> he was asked, what good thing must I do to gain eternal life? And when Jesus told him, do the Ten Commandments, he goes, oh, I do that all the time. Uh, <laughs> I've done that since I was a wee little lad. Um, but, so when Jesus replied to that by saying, well, if you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. So if you want to be perfect, you need to be willing to give everything to the God's kingdom. That was one thing this rich young man was not willing to do. His heart was still with his riches. Um, and Luke says, For where your treasure is, is also where your heart will be. Love the Lord, and you can serve him with gladness. But we cannot serve two masters, as Jesus said in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve both God and money. A true servant will allow his earthly treasures to, to serve the kingdom and follow God's example and give generously. Now we're going to get to God's gift of his son, which is the greatest gift. Um, and he did this because everyone, he loves us so much. I'm going to read John 3.16, which most of you know some version by heart. Um, this one, the Net Bible phrases it slightly different, so um, you'll have to follow along, I guess. For this is what the Lord 
the way that God, sorry, for this is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. And in 1 John 4, we also get another revelation of God's love. By this, the love of God is revealed in us, that God had sent his one and only son into the world so that we may live through him. In this, in this is love, that not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God so loved us, then we ought to love one another. So God is giving us an example here. He loved us so much that he gave his son, and so now we're supposed to follow that example and love each other. And then in Romans 5, we have another example of why God loves us so much. But God demonstrated his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than because we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him for, from God's wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, since we have been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Not only this, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. So God's love is so great to us that while we were sinners, Christ died on the cross for us, and now we've been declared righteous through his blood. And one more verse about God's gift to the Son, of his Son. We have come to know love by this, that Jesus laid down his life for us. Thus we ought to lay down our lives for our fellow Christians. But whoever has the world's possessions and see his fellow Christian in need and shuts off his compassion against him, how can the love of God reside in such a person? So, God's gift of the Son allows us to know God's love, just like the rain is a testimony of his goodness. When we understand that, we're going to be compelled to help our fellow believers and our fellow humans. One thing wonderful about the gift of God's Son is it allowed us to receive another wonderful gift of God, and that is his Spirit. We'll look at Joel's prophecy about the Spirit first. After all of this, I will pour out my Spirit on all kinds of people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your elderly will have prophetic dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on your male and female servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. So, it's promised to all of us, all kinds of people. John the Baptist also had a prophecy about the um, Holy Spirit when he was baptizing Jesus, or when he was talking about uh, the Messiah that was coming. I will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We can receive the Spirit because of Christ's sacrifice. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's in bold. Oh, never mind. My version has bold in it, but I was going to say that's in bold because it's uh, a quote from the Old Testament, but that's fine. In order that in Christ, Jesus, the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit by faith. So Jesus' death made it possible for us to receive the Holy Spirit. 
It's, it's part of the promise to Abraham. Even though we are not his natural descendants, with the Spirit we become his spiritual descendants. So, this Holy Spirit was first given out to the Jewish believers at the day of Pentecost. Now, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound of a violent wind blowing from heaven and filled the entire house where they were sitting. The tongue spreading out like a fire appeared to them and came to the rest of them, rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. So first it was to the Jews, and then to the Samaritans. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem had heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. These went down and prayed for them, so that they would receive the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, but they had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on the Samaritans, and they received the Holy Spirit. And then finally, the Spirit is given to the Gentiles in Cornelius' house. And that would be most of us here. We're uh, not of the seed of Abraham, so we're Gentiles. Then as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as he did on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord as he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he also gave us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to hinder God? When they heard this, they ceased their objections and praised God, saying, So then, God had granted the repentance that leads to life, even to the Gentiles. So this um, preaching in Cornelius' house happens in Acts 10, but I just quoted chapter 11, which is Peter defending his actions to the church in Jerusalem. And um, again, they received this news with gladness that uh, even Gentiles could lead, uh, be granted the repentance that leads to life. So just like Joel prophesied that God would pour out his spirit on all kinds of people, God has made this gift available to everyone. One thing nice about this, what's wonderful about this gift, is that it unites us. It's available to everyone, and it makes us united as um, believers, no matter who we are. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek or slaves or free, we all have been made to drink of the one spirit. So this unites a diverse people into one body so that we can preach the gospel and bring the kingdom of God to earth. So let's see what the first century church did with this generosity that they learned about from Jesus' teaching and from the apostles. How did they respond to all this teaching about generosity? Well, it starts immediately. Acts 2 is the, the account of the day of Pentecost. And at the end of that chapter, it says that all who believed were together and held everything in common. And they began to sell their property and possessions and distributing the proceeds to everyone as anyone who had need. And it continued. Um, so much so that in chapter 4, a few chapters later, <clears throat> it says that people were giving regularly. And it singled out Barnabas, the son of encouragement. That's a great nickname. Um, as one of the people that did this. The group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one said that any of his possessions were his own, but everything was held in common. 
With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on them all. For there was no one needy among them, because there were those who were owners of lands or houses were selling them and bringing them proceeds from the sales and placing them at Jesus, the apostles' feet. Sorry. The proceeds were distributed to each as anyone who had need. So Joseph, a Levite, who was a native of Cyprus, called by the apostles Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and placed it at Jesus' feet. So you see that there was very little need in the first century church in Jerusalem at this point because people that had land were selling them and giving the proceeds to those that did need. But of course, we have to have a bad example. And that would be Ananias and Sapphira, which is continuing on in the next um, chapter. Now, a man, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. He kept back for himself part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge. He brought only the part of it and placed it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds from the sale of the land? Before it was sold, did it not belong to you? And when it was sold, was the money not at your disposal? How have you thought up this deed in your heart? Why have you lied to, you have not lied to people, but to God? When Ananias heard these words, he collapsed and died. The King James says, Give, gave up the ghost. I like that phrase. Um, and great fear gripped them all. Who heard about it? So the young men came, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, but she did not know what had happened. Peter said to her, Tell me, were the two of you paid this amount for the land? Sapphira said, Yes, that much. Peter then told her, Why have you agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. At once she collapsed at his feet and died. So when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the whole church and all who heard about these things. Now, there was nothing wrong about them giving only part of the land, or the part of the proceeds from the land. Um, we read earlier that the rich young Euler was told to sell all he had. But there is no stated example in the Bible where someone actually followed that command literally. Um, they were trying to serve two masters. They wanted the claim of giving like Barnabas. They wanted a cool nickname. But they still wanted to have some money. So they trusted their money more than they trusted God's generosity. Um, so after the church expands, expands geographically from Samaria out to the uttermost parts of the earth, um, it also expanded ethnically. We've seen that in the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as these new believers arrived, they needed to be taught. They weren't in the synagogue, you know, as little lads learning the Bible. They needed to learn um, what the Old Testament and the, new, and the teachings of Jesus were. So they were taught to give. First, in the Old Testament, like in Proverbs, do not withhold good from those who need it when you have the ability to help. Do not say to your neighbor, go, return now, and I will give it to you when you have it with you at the time. So first we have the Old Testament, and then we have the letters or the, apostles, the epistles that were to churches from the apostles. 
So then, whenever you have an opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of faith. Now, it was radical in those days to give without expecting something in return. It's actually probably still radical today outside of the church. But they were showing that they recognized God's generosity when they were following the teaching. Another teaching was in 1 Timothy. Command those who are rich in this world's goods not to be haughty, but are set their hope on riches, which are uncertain, but a God who richly provides us with all things for our enjoyment. Tell them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous givers, sharing with others. In this way, they will save up a treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the future and so lay a hold of what is truly life. So it's basically saying, be generous in this world and I will give you the kingdom. Reward you in my kingdom. And then in Hebrews, we have, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. So it's saying that we need to please God by doing, serving him and doing good and allowing that our money to serve him and not, not, serve money or, or not serve our money. So, how did they do this? They gave. In um, Antioch, they heard about um, help, that, that the church in Jerusalem needed help. And it says, at the same time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, got up and predicted by the Spirit that a severe famine was about to come over the whole inhabited world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. So the disciples, each in accordance with his financial ability, decided to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. They did so, sending their financial aid to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So Judea would be the area around Jerusalem. So they just had a prophecy. It hadn't happened yet. But they believed in being, giving so much, they were going to take this prophet's word and send out some financial aid by Barnabas and Saul. And then in Galatia, with regard to the collection of the saints, please follow the directions that I gave you to the churches of Galatia. On the first day of the week, each of you should set aside some income and save it to the extent that God has blessed you, so that a collection will not have to be made when I come. Then, when I arrive, I will send those whom you have proved with letters of explanation to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable, then I should go also. They will go with me. So, another emergency uh, need was in Jerusalem was found, and he was talking about how the Galatians were providing. And then in Macedonia and Achaia, now I go to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do this, and indeed they are indebted to Jerusalem's saints. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things. They are obligated also to minister to them in material things. And then again, Macedonia is uh, mentioned in 2 Corinthians. Now we make known to you, brothers and sisters, that the grace of God given to the churches of Macedonia, that during a severe ordeal of suffering, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in the wealth of their generosity. For I testify that they gave according to their means and beyond their means. They did so voluntarily, begging us with great earnestness for the blessings and fellowship of helping the saints. 
wealth of their generosity they gave. Great line there. And then also the church in Corinth gave. So here's my opinion on the matter. It is not to your advantage since you have made a good start last year, both in your giving and your desire to give, to finish what you've started so that just as you wanted to do eagerly, you can also complete it according to your means. For if the eagerness is present, the gift itself is acceptable according to whatever one has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not say this so that you would be, so that there would be relief for others and suffering for you, but as a matter of equality. At the present time, your abundance will meet their need, so that one day their abundance may also meet your need, and thus there may be equality. So, God is saying, give now, and someday maybe you will be um, given to when you have need. So how can we apply this generosity? Well, first of all, we need to recognize the lies of the devil. The first lie in the garden even was questioning God's generosity. And as I said, Adam and Eve fell for it, and humanity has been falling for it ever since. And then we need to recognize the gifts that fulfill our physical needs. I use the example of the misinterpretation of the scripture on rain, but it doesn't need to be that obvious. Adam became alive when God breathed the breath of life. Every breath is a gift. Do we thank God for any of them? Um, my mother died of a pulmonary disease. So the last week of her life, I saw her fighting for every breath. So it helped me recognize that breath is a precious gift. But even with that experience, do I thank God for those breaths? Not all the time. So we need to remember that God's creation is full of bountiful gifts. And then we need to recognize the gift of God's Son. God gave his one and only Son. This is truly the greatest gift ever given. It gives us hope for this life and for the next. John 3.16 needs to be more than just a billboard sign. He established his kingdom on the cross. We need to live our daily lives in that kingdom. And then we also need to recognize the gift of the Holy Spirit. One of the reasons that the gift of the Son is so wonderful is that God's, Jesus' sacrifice made it possible for the Spirit to dwell inside of us. This allows the Spirit to guide us as individuals and as part of a unified body. If we do this, then we will realize that the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And we need to not worry and trust in God's generosity. God does know what we need. God created us in his image. He knows us better than we know ourselves. If God created manna for the children of Israel and gave oil to the widow and multiplied fish and loaves to feed thousands, he knew their needs and he provided for them. He knows our needs, too. We need to recognize that God gave generously to the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. God created the ecosystem that we're a part of that includes those ravens and the flowers. They do not store up for tomorrow, but God supplies their daily needs. He gave Adam and Eve a garden, and the children of Israel a land full of milk and honey. Again, God still provides bountifully today. We need to realize that God will give us what we do need. The introduction to the Lord's Prayer says, 
or part of the Lord's Prayer, it says, give us today our daily bread. We can plan our futures, but we need to understand everything we have is from God, and we then need to trust him. So as we understand God's generosity, we have to reciprocate it and give generously. We need to follow God's example. In James 1.17, All generous giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or the slightest hint of change. So we need to follow his example, give generously and thoughtfully. We need to follow the example of the early church. They served God and not money. They gave sacrificially and without recognition. When are we giving? Are we giving, trusting God and sacrificing? Or are we expecting some recognition when we do give? They realized the needy and gave generously to them. They saw the needy and helped. They put their community above themselves. Do we even see the needy? And when we do, do we help them? Or are we like the priest or Levite in the Good Samaritan parable and walk on by with some convenience excuse? Where is our priority? Our individualism or our community? And then they plan to give, especially to their fellow believers. We have a wonderful ministry called Acts here, which allows us to plan and give as a church. And we give to some great, that money goes to some great charities and to benevolence. But do we plan to give as individuals or families? Just remember, give and you'll be putting your treasure in heaven. I have a few minutes. Does anyone have any questions? Okay. Well, if I don't know this much time, I would have added uh, the Bible Project video on generosity. I recommend it. Go ahead and watch it, and uh, have a good day. Today, and... Uh, and uh, I'm excited. I'm sorry, I was even wrong. That was day four. Day five is the animals and every living creature. That, that shows you I need to work on it a little bit more. Verse number 14 of Genesis chapter 1 says this, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and he made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. Everybody say it was good. Now, I just picked that day out because I'm going to use it as a reference, but go down to verse 31 of Genesis chapter 1. It says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Everybody say very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. I want to, with the help of the Lord, minister this message to you today. Don't settle for good when very good is possible. Don't settle for good when very good is possible. Would you just bow your heads and 
We just need to get everything, all of the obstacles out of our thinking for the next few minutes so that the word of God can come clearly to us. Jesus, I pray against every voice of the enemy and every voice of life that would hinder us from hearing what you have for us today. Lord, I believe that you have spoken into this church, and I believe, God, that you're wanting to get our attention. And so I come against everything that could hinder your voice today, and I'm asking you, Lord, to give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you're trying to say. And allow us, Lord Jesus, with clarity to understand your word today. Lord, fill me up and pour me out upon your people. In your wonderful name I pray. Amen, amen. Praise God. I believe that all too often we as believers get stuck in the good when God's got very good. And so here, here's what I, I want you to, I want to say that again. We get stuck in the good when God wants to give us very good. And what I mean by that is the things that God is doing in our lives and speaking into our lives are not bad things. They're good things. They're just incomplete. The reason why God looked at the end of every day of creation and said he said it was good until he got down to the end of the sixth day and he said it's not just good, it's very good. And the reason is, is because the very next scripture in verse number one of chapter two, it said the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And so he finished it on the sixth day. He completed it on the sixth day, and then he rested on the seventh. See, when God does something, he wants to do it to completion. Is anybody in the house today? I said when God wants to do something, he wants to do it to completion. He wants to do something that takes you beyond just one aspect of life, and he wants to multiply it into that which is complete and whole and righteous. He wants you to be whole, not just healed. He wants you to be whole, not just a work in progress. The problem is, is we get stuck and comfortable at certain levels of progress and we don't continue to move toward that which is complete or that which is very good because we like the things that are good. I love good things, but then there's some very good things. I, I love some things that are good for me, that I enjoy but if I ever take a step back and realize that God's got something even better, even greater, even more fulfilling, even more complete, why wouldn't I reach for it? Because it's very good. I'm reminded of the meme that I've seen in, uh, on Facebook and stuff of, of Jesus kneeling before a little child asking him to give... Uh, asking the child to give him his, their little teddy bear. And, and the meme is basically saying we don't recognize it because behind Jesus' back is a teddy bear that's ten times bigger than the one she's giving up. But we want to hold on to the little one, that good thing that we have, because we don't see what he's really trying to do into us and really trying to speak into us. And I believe the Lord has given me some understanding this week, I believe, that will help us understand what gets us stuck in the good. And part of it was what Paul taught this morning as he was speaking, and he began to use the phrase, it rains on the just and the unjust, and maybe he hadn't heard me preach that here because I agreed with him. 
and you'll have to watch it to understand what I'm talking about. You missed it already. But uh, the, 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 the rain comes on the just. Everything that God does is good. And the problem is we don't recognize the goodness of God because we have come to an understanding, albeit wrongfully, that there are good things and bad things. Can I tell you, you either believe the scripture that says all things work together to them uh, for good, to them that love God, or you don't believe that scripture. God takes things that we think might be bad, but because they're in his hand, they become good, and what he's doing is he's measuring us, he's molding us, he's shaping us, he's trying to make us whole so that we get to a place where we understand the goodness and the power and the very good of God. And so the rains or the storms of life that come into our are a blessing from God. Now, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble today, but can I just tell you, and I've been saying it for several months, but we give the devil way too much credit. We blame him for things that he can't even dream up. We blame him. Listen, don't get me wrong. The devil is very real. He's throwing stuff, all kinds of stuff out there that, that trying to trip us and trying to mess with us. But can I tell you, you have one of two things to believe. Either he's stronger than you or he's weaker than you. And the Bible says that if you have Jesus, he's no match. So either you're strong enough in Jesus to resist the devil and he flees or you have to find God more than you have to fight the devil. Uh, notice what he creates here in Genesis chapter 1. In verse number 14, he divides the night and the day or the darkness and the light, if you will. And it says this, and let them be for signs and for seasons. Can I tell you what that word seasons means? It means an appointed time. Let the night and the day be for an appointed time. It is a sign to us that he's in control. He controls the night. He controls the day. He created the night. He created the day. He created the storm and all the storms that can come. My friend, let me just tell you today that God is the one that controls the seasons. Let me just share with you some scriptures to reveal that to you so that it's not just coming from me, if you'll turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, real tiny scripture, real tiny book, right after Proverbs. But Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1 says this To everything there is a season. Everybody say everything. Everything, everything. Everything, there is a season. You've got a season. I've got a season. Your enemy's got a season. Your kid's got a season. Everything. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build. You get the picture. There is an appointed time for everything. Here's our problem. We try to make something happen when it's not the right season. 
and then we get ticked off because God hasn't come through in the right season or, or, your, or, or your enemy has come against you because you've attached when it's just a season. To everything there's a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. Let, let me take you to Psalm 74. Psalm 74. Some of you are kind of looking at me today like, what's he really talking about? Verse 16, Psalm 74, 16. The day is thine and the night also is thine. In the middle of your darkness, it's not your enemies, it's not your mess-ups, it's not your mistakes, it's not your sins. The night is his. Thou hast prepared the light in the sun. Thou hast set all the borders of the earth. Thou hast made summer and winter. Some of you might get this here before too long. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is often used for preachers, but it's not just preachers. Verse number 2, he says, Preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Notice that phrase, be instant, in season, and out of season. Be instant. We've always said, well, that means to be ready. Can I tell you that that's only partially true? If you dig into the Greek for the word instant, it's the same word in the Greek as the word assault. It means that in season and out of season, get ready to move. Get ready to go on the advance. Get ready to march into your battles because both in season and out of season are declared to be God's. It doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing. If God is on your side, it doesn't matter the season. He's in control of the season. There is something that is happening in today's world that does not recognize the seasons. It's the seasons that are causing us all kinds of problems. Can I tell you, I wrote a poem years ago about Minnesota. This is when I wasn't living here. See, I grew up here. I moved to Delaware where there are not four seasons. There's hot and damp and cold and damp. And you might have three or four days in between. We were just out there a couple of days ago. And uh, the first half of the, well, we got there on a Sunday night. We flew out after church, got there late Sunday night. And it was not until the day we left that it got nice. Because it was above 90, probably closer to 94 or 95 but because of the humidity from the ocean, it felt 15 to 20 degrees hotter than that. I didn't leave the house after 8 a.m., 9 a.m., something like that. I think she sent me out one day. But, man, I had to crank that air. And then I'd run from that to the store wherever I was going. We stopped and got my birthday dinner, and I made her go into the store. I didn't make her. She did it. I just dropped her off. She walked in, and it's a pizza place and a, and a cheesesteak place, and, 
and the lobby, it was 95 outside, hot and humid. Inside, they had a rotary fan or a little fan blowing in the back, and that was it. She came out just, I was like, this is why I moved. I went to Kansas City, and it wasn't much, more, much better than Dover. It was kind of the same. We had a little bit longer, nice weeks. But, man, you get into the summer, and it was hot. And you get into the winter, and it didn't snow, it iced. And, and so you, you could go skating down our street oftentimes because of the rain and the freezing, and it was crazy. But I wrote this poem about Minnesota because I was craving my four seasons and not the hotel. I love Minnesota because it has four seasons. Now, there are people that have messed up the four seasons and have, and have taken to themselves to change some of the seasons into construction season or pothole season. I get all of that. But we are in a territory where we have a distinct spring Summer, fall, and winter. We're getting ready to head into fall. It's amazing how quickly the, uh, the, the trees change their colors here in just a few. My, mine in my backyard are already starting to change. I don't know about yours. And it's going to change. It's going to become beautiful, and we're going to drive down streets, and you're going to see all of the color. And then we're going to see bare trees. And we're going to be wondering where the grass went. And we're going to be driving on streets that have snow packed and you don't know where the asphalt is anymore. But then, if you just hold on, for me, it's hockey tournament weekend in March. High school hockey tournament lets me know spring is coming because almost every year since I was just a kid, there was one day during the, the hockey tournament that would melt big time and we'd have to walk through puddles. And I knew spring was on its way. And then summer. Here's the problem. We don't recognize four seasons in God. Even though the scripture says he created both summer and winter. He created harvest season and dormant season. He created planting season and harvesting season. He did it all. He created all four seasons, and yet we get into a certain season and we struggle because we're wondering why God's not coming through, why we're not getting an answer, why God's not anointing isn't seeming to flow. What well, you might just be in winter. But God created winter. Can I tell you that a farmer in Minnesota doesn't go into an all-out panic when the snow covers his fields because he knows that in just a few months' time, the snow is going to melt and he's going to get his big combine out there and start turning the soil and planting for a new season. Can I tell you if you're in your winter season, don't criticize God for not seeming to be there. He's just having you lie dormant for a moment under the snow because the snow, by the time spring comes, the snow is going to be the nutrient, the water, the fuel that will cause the planting of your spring to spring up. We get tied up in our wrong seasons. It says be instant in season and out of season. 
it means that we have to activate our faith on a different level within the different seasons. Can I tell you, if you're expecting a harvest in the winter season, you're going to be sorely mistaken. It's why the birds get out of here. Because they know they're not going to have any food. It's the reason why the bears put it all together. Because they know for the winter months they can go into dormancy because they don't have to forage for food because they're not going to really find any anyhow. Let me just tell you, you might be in a winter season, but just hold on a little bit longer because your winter is going to give way to spring. Your spring is going to give way to summer. Your summer is going to give way to fall or your harvest season. See, here's what we fail to realize. On three different levels, there is individual seasons There are family seasons, and then there's church family seasons. Hey, if God's blessing the person that's sitting down the rows from you, don't get jealous. They're in fall. You're in winter. You're as anointed as they are. Hey, when somebody starts getting something brand new, a brand new revelation, a brand new blessing, don't get discouraged. They've entered spring. You're getting ready to harvest what you planted. And and listen, your families are different. My family's harvest season is different than your harvest season. We step into blessing at a different time every year than your family does. Why? Because God has created a season. Here's the thing to remember. It's still God's season. (laughs) Oh, I I said we we give the devil so much credit. Please don't misunderstand me. Don't walk away from here saying pastor doesn't believe in the, in the devil and he, he's real. He's, he's there. He's messing with us. He's trying to destroy us. He's trying to seek us out to kill us. He's trying to do all kinds of things. But here's what I know. I know, I know, I know. The word of God says greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I don't have to fear him. I don't have to quake amongst him. I don't have to panic around Around him, I can stand strong in that day and in that hour when he's messing because I understand that he might be messing with me in the wrong season. So I might as well be instant in that season. It's the reason why God, ble- uh, why the devil messes with us at different times. Some of you are newer. What's the easiest way to destroy you is to pluck up that little tree root. I don't know how many of you have planted trees. We planted four of them here a couple of years ago. They're right out back here. Four little, the first time they came in, man, all you had to do was do this. And it would have come out and died. It was at spring season. It had just been planted. The soil was still loose. The sprout wasn't very strong. 
Can I tell you that it could be your spring season where you've just started to sprout in the presence of God and the devil doesn't like it? So he's going to mess with you in that planting season. He's going to mess with you in that beginning of the growth season and try to trip you up. My friend, you've got to stop and say, no, 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 no. I'm just standing still for a little bit. I'm going to get my roots deep down into the soil where the winds and the and the storms can't destroy me, can't topple me, can't uproot me. I'm going to find the nutrients down in the soil. I'm going to dig a little deeper in God's well because there's coming a time when the summer's going to come and the heat is going to be turned up and the humidity is going to, and unless you're in an atmosphere where something is being able to water you, you're going to be all, all alone and dry. That's still God's season, but it's not a punishment. It's a place where God works out all of the stuff and burns the chaff from that which is good and separates all the mess of the gold to let the pure gold rise because he understands that which he planted in the planting season, that which he purifies in the heat season. He's going to bring forth a harvest in the fall season. My friend, if you've felt the heat of the Lord, if you have felt the purification of his hand upon you, get ready. He's getting ready to bring something forth in you. That which was planted a long time ago is getting ready to spring forth. Oh my. I know what it's like to go through the seasons. I wish I could tell you that I was always on fire for God 24-7, 365, and 52. Doesn't happen that way. But I learned a long time ago, as just a young man, I had this principle taught to me. Just keep walking through the seasons. Because for everything, there is a season. Can I tell you that sometimes in the winter, God is trying to knock off some of the old leaves? You want to know the first branches that come down when they get pruned before when It's the dead branches. I, I, I know that doesn't sound good, but God loves you too much to leave you the way you are going into a winter season. And so he knocks some rough edges off and he rakes up the leaves and he does one of two things with the leaves. He puts them in a bag and puts them at the end of the driveway or he makes them compost, one of the two. And why? Because if he turns it to compost, you put that stuff that he took off back on your new ground in the spring and that becomes nutrients to that which is becoming new. Seasons. Seasons. You see, we get tied up. We like summer, and we want to stay in summer. Or we like fall, and we stay in fall. Most of us here probably don't like winter all that much. We say we do because we're Minnesotans and we're nuts. And I used to like it a lot more when I was younger. But now I open the door and I want to just go back inside. I used to enjoy getting all cold and snow all through my hair and 
walk in like a snowman. I used to enjoy that. Not as much anymore. But you know what? It's still God's season. How many of you are spring people? You love spring. All ten of you. No, I'm just kidding. How about summer? How many really like the warmth in the summer? I know some of you are like, oh, it's going to get warm in the building. Nah, we ain't working that. We just lower the air a little bit. How many like fall? Everybody likes fall. How many like winter? All the kids just raised their hands, including Chad. Here's the thing. Spiritually, we try to stay in the season that we like, which is a good season. But the very good is the cycle of completion. You see, there is no San Diego in the spiritual realm of God. San Diego that stays between 65 and 75 just about every day of the entire year. You don't find that in God. He created the seasons. And I, keep, I, I love fall. I love fall. I enjoy it. We've got the house open. You, 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 you smell all of Starbucks as all of the pumpkin spice nastiness comes out. And the apple cider, now that's what I like. Taryn already posted the apple cider donuts out there by the, the orchard out there. It's already the, I love fall. But can I tell you something? I would never have fall if I didn't have spring. Because spring is what gives us the leaves that change in the fall. Spring is what brings us the warmth and ushers in the planting season that gives us the harvest season in fall. Don't despair in your seasons, but in every season, recognize that it's God and recognize that he's in control of the seasons, that it's he that created both the summer and the winter. He's the one that created the seasons as an appointed time for all things so that you can rejoice in him in your spring, in your summer, in your fall, and even in your winter. Isaiah chapter 54. I want to read. This is a millennial prophecy. But the principle is very appropriate for this message. And then we'll come to a close. Chapter 54, verse 1. Sing, O barren. Listen. Listen to that. Not you that are full... Not you that have been blessed. Not you that have everything that you want. Not you that are going through the smooth sailing. It says, sing, O barren. You that haven't gotten what you've desired. You that haven't seen what you want to see. You that haven't experienced what you want to experience. That's who should sing, thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate 
than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. That word desolate doesn't mean empty, by the way. That word desolate means awe-filled. Filled with awe. More are the children of those that are filled with awe than the children of the married. My friend, there is something that you can do in every season to usher yourself through to the next season, to from the good to the very good. Begin to sing. Break forth in singing and crying with a loud voice of worship, knowing that the promise of God says that what you don't have now, there's going to be more of that than you can ever imagine than all of those that seem to have it all together. My friend, this isn't talking about natural childbirth. This is a messianic prophecy to the kingdom of Israel, saying, Israel, there's coming a day when all of that which is all filled is going to outnumber the natural man and woman. There's something that's getting ready to happen. I believe that God is speaking in the spirit of grace, church. Hold on tight because that which was promised a long time ago is getting ready to happen. It's getting ready to happen. It's getting ready to happen. All the prophecies of the multicultural church are getting ready to happen. All of the different kinds of people are getting, we're getting ready to step into a season where God brings forth in abundance. We don't see it yet. There's still a lot of empty seats here. We're creating some space. We're working on getting the other areas of the building taken care of. We're working on it. We're creating it. We're trying to get it to where we can use it. Why? Because we're in a season of planting. But just hold on. It's getting ready for the floodgates of God to open. Verse number two, enlarge the place of your tent. (laughs) What do you need to do in season and out of season? Enlarge your tent. Don't get comfortable with that which God has done for you. Don't get comfortable with the small blessings of God, the good blessings of God. Continue to expand your territory. Continue to push out the borders of your understanding. Continue to dig deep into the things of the Word of God. Continue to enlarge your tent. Because God will not fill a full entity. He will only fill that which has room to fill into. He won't pour into you until you have emptied yourself to him. He will not bring a harvest until you get the seeds out of the granary and into the soil. He won't be able to give you that which he wants to give you until you step into the season of appointment. So enlarge the place of your tent. Let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not... Listen, I'm not talking just about money here. You can take that and apply that, which, by the way, for the last three weeks, I've forgotten to tell you, we did move our offering container over to this table here. That's an aside. 
Now I can, because I almost forgot for the fourth week. This isn't, when I say in the scripture, to spare not, to lengthen your cords, to strengthen your stakes. What, what am I saying? Here's what I'm saying is get yourself prepared. Maybe you're not feeling the, the harvest of your life right now. Maybe you're just in survival mode. Maybe you're in that end of winter, beginning of spring, and you're trying to figure out what God's trying to do in you, and you can't see it clearly, and you can't understand it clearly, and circumstances of your life and storms of your life have come, and they've battered you like they batter a ship. Let me just tell you something. Just hold on to the promise of God. Just begin to sing and to cry out with a loud voice. Begin to enlarge your territory. Begin to put out that. Don't spare that. But get ready. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not. For thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth. Ah, let me say that again. There's coming a day, my friend, you that are newer to this thing called Jesus, let me just tell you there's coming a day, one of these seasons is going to transition and all the shame that you had from your youth and from your past experience is going to be tossed to the side. It's going to be removed from you because your shame cannot exist where God plants the new thing. Oh, some of you catch it. Some of you have been messing because your shame has tried to grow where you're trying to grow. Let me just tell you, you might have to pull the weed a little bit, create some more territory so God can pour some more in. For thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. What season are you in? God's done so many good things. But he's not gotten us to the very good yet. He's not done. I, I want you to notice as I close, the days of creation are interesting to me. The days of creation, God does, God's mind-blowing. He makes an example for us, for us to live by. Notice the first thing that he creates. Verse number three, let there be light. And there was light. Now, I don't know what that light was. I'll just, I'll read between the lines for me because it's not the sun. The sun doesn't come until day number four. Here, let me just give you Tim Sanders' theology. And if you don't believe me, you can be wrong. The Bible says that he is the light of the world. Can I just tell you what I believe this means here? When God says, let there be light, he just... 
and he saw that his light was good. Can I just tell you what I believe is getting ready to happen in the next 1,200 years? 1,000 plus 7 at least. In that city where the Lamb is the light, I believe that God's going to restore the original light when we get around his throne and he enlightens us all. He creates the air, the atmosphere, and the earth. In day number three, he, in, he creates all of the, the earth kind of things, the grass and the fruit and the trees and, and all that, that we like to look at. Ver, uh, the fourth day, the sun, the moon, the stars, the, and the seasons. The fifth day, the animals, every living creature. Day six is the crowning of his creation being man. And in all of those, he said they're good. But let me ask you this. Would you want to live where there is only a firmament, but there ain't no land? Would you want to live where there's only the sun, the moon, and the stars, but there's nothing else? It was good. The blessings of God were good. God even said it was good. And if God said it's good, that means it's probably good. And he gets down to day number five and he creates all the animals. Fido and kitty cat. Those are good. But is that enough? But then he creates us. And then the Bible says at the end of the chapter, he looks at all of it. The progression of his creation, at the completion of his creation. And he says, hmm, that's very good. Don't get stuck in your good. Keep pushing towards the very good. Don't get bottled in the season that you like. Get ready for the season he's getting ready to lead you into. And the cycle that he takes you through. Now, I, 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 I'm giving you something here that's, that's not just, it, it, I can't prove it scripturally. Okay, and whenever I do that, I tell you that. But I believe this. If God set up the seasons to last a year cycle, I believe at the minimum every year God is taking us to the next level. And what I knew in my 51st year, God's getting ready to multiply in my 52nd year. 53rd year. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, he's not restricted to the exact seasons because all of us are in a different season. We all come to the Lord at different times. But don't despise your season. God ordained it. I, I invite you to stand.
Here's what I want us to do.